92, beginning in verse 1. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, with the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, now we pause and we give these few moments uh, to hear from you. Father, we're not here to to hear from me. Uh, We're here to hear from the one who is our king. The one who has created and redeemed us. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Would you give us eyes to see? And would your spirit accompany, in a powerful way, the preaching of your word this morning. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The church tradition that I grew up in, and then later served in for over a decade, wasn't really sure what to do with the weekly gathering of God's people. And when I say that, it was a question of not whether or not we ought to meet. But it was a question of what we thought this time together was supposed to do. What's it supposed to accomplish? See, on the one hand, in the tradition that I grew up in, uh, there wasn't really anything particularly special about gathering together with God's people on a Sunday morning. Because most we thought of what happened on a Sunday morning I could get throughout the week. And so if If Jesus and I were good, and there were no major unconfessed sin in my life, and I was giving attention to my own spiritual disciplines, I had my own time in the Word and my own time of prayer, then gathering with God's people wasn't really necessary. But on the other hand, that tradition always looked forward on Sunday morning, hoping that something extraordinary might actually happen. That someone might be dramatically saved or someone might come forward at the end of the service to rededicate their life to the Lord Jesus Christ or someone might come and surrender to a call to ministry. Now, I learned later in seminary, I was handed a wonderful uh, book called Revival and Revivalism. And I learned that this attitude towards the Lord Day 
is actually left over from a movement that we know as revivalism. Well, thankfully, that view of the Lord's Day and not really knowing what to do with it and not knowing what it's for, that's not the view of our tradition. And it's certainly not the view of the Bible. Indeed, in the weekly gathering of God's people, Jesus himself promises to be present and to use the ordinary means of word, prayer, praise, and sacrament to build his kingdom. Now, listen, God, we know this, God can work wherever and whenever and however he wants, but he has promised to work particularly when we gather together each and every Lord's Day. As the superscription to Psalm 92 tells us, this is a song to be sung or a prayer to be prayed when God's people gather on the Sabbath. And in that act of gathering, we learn that God is doing a particular work among us. So what is that work? Well, we see in our big idea for this morning Uh, some hint of what that work is. It's good for God's people to recount his work of creation and redemption and to rest and rejoice in him. Three points we want to make then this morning. The first one is this, that this gathering together is good for everybody. This gathering together is good for everybody. I hope you noted right away the psalmist tells us that it's good to give thanks to the Lord. And there's probably no more overworked word in the English language than the word good. If you have teenagers, you are probably frustrated by their overuse of this term. How are you? Good. You've told me absolutely nothing. Or oftentimes, when we use the word good, we're denoting something that's not great, it's not awful, it's just kind of middle of the road. How was the movie that you saw? Ah, It was good. But the Hebrew sense of the term, however, is something quite different. The Hebrew word tov, you may recall, is used by God at the end of every day of creation. At the end of the first day, God looks at what he has done and he declares that it is good. Not extraordinary, Not phenomenal, not great or fantastic or any of the other words that we would want to use. No, he says that it's good. Us gathering together and recounting what it is that God has done to give thanks to him, God tells us is good. God is declaring, like he did in creation, that what we do when we gather week after week is a good thing. It's also good for us. In other words, it's beneficial for your soul to gather and to give thanks to the Lord for that which he has done in our lives. It's pleasant. It's a behavior that the Bible tells us carries a particular blessing with it. Look at verse 4, if you would. The psalmist tells us that you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works, and at the works of your hands I sing for joy. We're made glad 
and we are made joyful because of what God has done. And when we gather together week by week to be reminded of that and to sing God's praise and to recount his work of creation and redemption. Friends, there is blessing that comes when we gather together week by week with God's people. It's also a good thing because what we are doing week by week is truthful. In a world that is dominated by spin, in a world that is dominated uh, by the ability to have plausible deniability, God's people week by week gather together to tell the truth about the world in which we live. We are declaring then the truth about God himself. One of the really striking things about this psalm and one of the ways uh, in, in Hebrew poetry that the writer gets our attention and lets us know what he really wants us to understand is the use of repetition. I don't know if you noticed when we read it, but seven times in the 15 verses of Psalm 52, we see the covenant name for God. Look at verse 1. It's in all caps, L-O-R-D. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's your covenant name for God. We see it again in verse 4, it's there again in verse 5, it's there again in verse 8, it's again in verse 9. So the whole point of this psalm is, listen, when we gather together, uh, we're actually supposed to be focused on God. We're supposed to be focused on what He has done. We're supposed to be singing His praise, not our own praise, or not the praise of the place in which we live, or any of the other things that we could substitute for being focused on God himself. I remember at times over the years, uh, I would have people come and they'd sit down and they'd say, well, Pastor, we, we, really, we, we like the service. It's good. At which point I knew, okay, there's a but coming. And the but was usually something like this. There's, there's, just, there's, there's just a lot of Bible in the service. And when you preach, you, like, you know, you, you just talk about the Bible. Yeah. That's all I got. I'm, I am a, literally, I am a one-trick pony. I have one skill. That's it. Ask my wife. She'll tell you I am useless around the house. I can read a text and talk about it. That's all I got. But it's interesting, isn't it, in Sunday school as we've been reading that wonderful book by Michael Horton and he talks about why it is that Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z are leaving the church and they're not coming to the church. One of the things that's happening is they're tired of this hour on Sunday morning being overly politicized. Well, friends, if we're actually doing what Psalm 92 commands us to do, to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to His name, to declare, verse 2, His steadfast love and His faithfulness. That doesn't have anything to do with, it. It have anything to do with politics. Not a single thing. So let's make sure that when we understand it's tov, it's good for us to do this, that the attention and the focus and the star every Sunday morning is the triune God. It's not me. It's not KT. 
It's not you. It's not your needs. No, it's God. I love, I, when I was in college, uh, there was a sort of a, um, a, a, a rediscovery of a book called My Utmost for His Highest. And if you've read it, I hope you got to read it in the original translation and not in the hopped up silly one, the new, like they did an album with it and so they re-upped the English and it was awful. But there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful uh, line in my utmost for his highest that Oswald Chambers reminds us of. And that is that every time we gather, we gather for an audience of one. That's it. Our audience, when we gather each and every week, it's not you. The focus is not on you or on me or on, no. When we gather, we gather to worship and we gather for an audience of one. Secondly, can you see it? Can you see it? The psalmist immediately moves then in this poem to contrast for us that yes, God's works are very great. Verse 5, his thoughts are very deep. And it's wonderful that God's people can sing his praises. But oh yeah, by the way, there is the stupid man and the fool. There is the wicked and the evil doer. And they have nothing whatsoever to do with what's going on week by week as God's people gather to praise him. And there we see yet another purpose of the weekly gathering together of God's people. It clearly delineates between those who are God's people and those who simply think they are God's people. Now, the term stupid and fool, I understand those are words that if your kids use them, uh, you'd get on them because those aren't kind words and we're not supposed to call people stupid and we're not supposed to say that they're a fool. But understand that in the Bible, stupid and fool don't have anything to do with mental capacity, but rather with someone's spiritual condition. This is not about their intellectual ability to grasp the things that are being presented. Rather, we're told that in their current spiritual condition, they can make no sense of what's going on. Now, we see that further because as we move down in this section in verse 7, it's the wicked, it's evildoers. Twice we hear of the evildoers. Those who are God's enemies. So this isn't about those who have some kind of mental capacity or lack of mental capacity. No, this is entirely about the inclination of their heart. It's not about the ability of their mind. Rather, it's about the inclination of their heart. And so the habit of gathering together with God's people, particularly gathering together in a way that we know is going to be focused on Him, it actually speaks to your spiritual aptitude. Because one of the things that's happening, hopefully, each and every week when we gather, is we're getting clued into, yet again, to be able to see the work of God in the world. What's the Lord doing? What has the Lord done? What will the Lord do in the world in which He has created? Now in the Psalms, when the psalmist speaks of the work of the Lord, 
there are two primary ways in the Psalms that God's work is spoken of, and you see it there in your outline. The first one is uh, God in the Psalms is clearly the creator. It's not Baal. It's not Asherah. It's not Marduk. No, it's Yahweh who intentionally and purposefully spoke into being everything that is. And everything that he created, he watches over and he superintends. He governs by his word. And yet, one of the things that the psalmist is reminding us of is that those who don't have this kind of spiritual aptitude, uh, those who are the fool, those who are wicked, evildoers, and enemies, they cannot see God's work in the world. Now keep your finger in Psalm 92, but turn over with me if you would to Romans chapter 1. For in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Actually, let's, uh, let's start in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to see that this isn't just an idea that the psalmist gives us. It's also something that the Apostle Paul says. It's still at work in the world in which we live. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, in other words, we're talking about the fool, we're talking about the stupid man, we're talking about the evildoer. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's the word again and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, when we gather together Sunday by Sunday, and when we exalt and proclaim not only that God is our Redeemer, but that God is the Creator of all that is, whether or not you can see that truth is an indication of whether or not you really are one of God's people. If you can look at creation and think to yourself, what a wonderful accident, then you're not one of God's people. Do you note it's the very first line that we confess together when we say the Apostles' Creed? Take your bulletin, uh, you know, if, look at the outline, but turn over a page. Look at page 6, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Redeemer, Creator. Creator of heaven and earth. One of my favorite uh, writers, just in general, and I, I, every time I read him, I, I rejoice and I lament. I rejoice because it's beautiful and I lament because I realize I will never, ever write prose like that man can. And it just makes me want to go in the corner and suck my thumb. Uh, Eugene Peterson is the man's name. And in his pastoral memoir, he talks about how in a church he planted in Maryland, 
they were meeting in the basement of their home, and there was a man who would come. He came to church because, now please understand, this is a generation ago. This man came because his wife came. And the man happened to be an engineer, and he didn't really believe, he, he held to atheistic evolution, uh, so uh, he was not an atheist, but he didn't believe that God was the creator. And so week by week, he would come with his wife, and Eugene Peterson said he could tell when things were beginning to change in this man's heart, because every week they would stand and they would recite the Apostles' Creed, and the man would say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and then he would go silent. And Eugene said, I knew, he writes, I knew that God was at work in his life when he very loudly one week proclaimed the creator of heaven and earth. Can you see that God is the creator? But secondly, can you see that God is the redeemer? Do you understand that God didn't just create everything, throw it into motion, and step back and say, hey, figure it out for yourself. But rather, God is the one who has redeemed his fallen creation. Do you get that? Can you see that? Now again, this isn't just the psalmist calling us to try to discern these things. But rather, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this fact as well. Listen to the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the chapter that Jenny read for us in our New Testament reading. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. One of the things I never particularly understood growing up was uh, just how irate Christians would get at times uh, at non-Christians for just not having a clue. I was always stunned at how just upset we would get and just belligerent at sinners for actually acting like sinners. Like, what did you think? They were just going to figure it out on their own? I hope that one of the things that understanding what both the psalmist is telling us and that the Apostle Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I hope in some sense it gives us a biblical sense of compassion for those whose eyes have not yet been opened. It's pretty stunning that one of the metaphors the gospel, uh, the gospel writers use more often than not to speak of new life in Jesus Christ is that those who were blind by Jesus are healed and now they can see. Friends, when we gather week by week, we're reminded that being able to see that God is the creator, that God is the redeemer, we're reminded that those things are a gift of God. And as we gather week by week, it ought to increase our ability to see God's majesty in creation and redemption. Hopefully as you look around at the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ and you see God at work, 
your capacity to see and discern and praise God for what He is doing should grow. It should expand. You should be as thankful for what God is doing in Deb's life and in Fran's life and in Kay's life and in Jenny's life as you are in your own life. And in paying careful attention to the graciousness and goodness and care of God, it ought to increase our capacity to not only understand what He's doing, but it ought to put a song in our heart. God has been good not just to me, but He has been good to my brothers and my sisters in Christ. That brings us then to the third point, that we need to rest and rejoice in the Lord. The psalmist has been telling us about the evildoer. The psalmist has been telling us about the one who has eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. But now he turns, he changes. And we know there's a change coming because verse 10 begins with that beautiful little conjunction, but. Now we need to note and we need to understand that from this point on, the rest of the psalm is not going to be talking about uh, just how fantastic it is to be one of God's people and all the things that we ought to do. But please note that there is a passive voice that the psalmist employs from here to the end of the psalm. You have exalted my horn. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen. My ears have heard. They are planted. They flourish. They still bear In other words, the psalmist is reminding us that God is the one who has done the work of creation and redemption. And because God is the one who has done the work, we as God's people can rest. We can stop our striving. We can stop our grasping. But rather, the Lord's Day is an invitation each and every week to trust in the work that God has done for us in Christ. The Lord's Day is not the opportunity for you to impress God with how pious you are. To earn points with God. Hey God, not only did I show up, but I came to Sunday school. I am super spiritual. No, the Lord's Day calls us to rest. The Lord's Day calls us not to trust in our own work, not to trust in the power of our own hands. Rather, the Lord's Day calls us to trust in what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. Let's go from preaching to meddling this morning. What do you need to set aside this Lord's Day? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to take and leave 
at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have family anxieties? I tell people all the time, it's fun now that our kids are a certain age, uh, but being the parent of young adults really is a pain in their head. It is. Because uh, we love them, we've raised them, and they are adults. Uh, but I love how they put it at Union when we dropped Gabrielle off. They said, yes, parent, we're going to treat your children like they are adults, because that's what they are. They're just not very good at it yet. So how do you navigate, how do you negotiate that? with people who are adults and should be treated like adults, but they're not particularly good at it yet. Or maybe you have other family concerns. Maybe you have grown children who aren't walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have grown children who profess to walk with Jesus, but their lives tell a very, very different story. Do you have job concerns? Do you have health concerns? I love in the Horton book we've been reading, he talks about we all, we have this pressure now, don't we, to secure our future, which is just complete insanity because the only one who can secure our future is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's already done it. What do you need to set aside? What do you need to put down and rest? and what God has done on your behalf. Well, here's the good thing then. It isn't just a ceasing of doing something, but there's something we actually also get to do. We get to rejoice. We are the recipients of God's gracious, saving work. And you didn't do anything. Not a dadgum thing. The only thing you brought to the equation was the sin that needed to be forgiven. The folly that needed to be set aside. The guilt that needed to be atoned for. So again, let me ask a question. Uh, what's God done for you that ought to cause you to rejoice? Now, I know sometimes, depending on your personality, like rejoicing just sort of wears you out. It just kind of makes you tired because that's what silly, stupid people do. Right? They're all, yeah, it's not me. But instead of a silly, over-loud expression, there can and ought to be a deep and sincere acknowledgement that God has done for you, more for you in Christ, than you could ever even imagine. So do you rejoice in that? Do you rest knowing that in spite of your circumstances, God has exalted your horn. He has poured over you fresh oil. Your eyes have seen the downfall of your enemies. You have heard the doom of your evil assailants. You will flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar tree. You have been planted in the house of the Lord. You will flourish in the courts of the Lord. And now you get to declare, verse 15, that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness 
in him. I really wanted to entitle the third point this morning, Can You Smell What the Rock is Cooking? Gabrielle talked me out of it. We get to rest and rejoice in what God has done for his people. This morning now, as we come to the table, God isn't done speaking to us of redemption and rest and rejoicing. Because the table is a very picture of the redemption that God has accomplished for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded that His body was broken and we are reminded that His blood was shed, not for His own sin, but for ours. And because God provides this meal for us, because God has purposed and accomplished our redemption, our redemption is not a self-help DIY kind of project. No, the work has been done. And so come and eat. Come and enjoy the table. Come and gather with your family in celebration not of anything that you have done, but in celebration of what God has done through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are redeemed. Rest in what God has done on your behalf and then rejoice. Rejoice. On the cross, Jesus didn't say, it's 90% done. No, on the cross, the Lord Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's done. Friends, let us rest in that. And let us rejoice that the God who created us has also redeemed us. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you so graciously provide for us all that we need. And not only do you, it's not like you set it before us with instructions and say, here, go to work. You've done it. And as the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all. May we rest in that. May we rejoice in that. And Father, may we see with new eyes this week the glory and majesty of the one who both created us and redeemed us. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.